0: Version is that you prefer. So you know, some people like the ESV or the NIV or like the KJV. This is not meant to replace that. It's meant to give you another perspective. Uh, it's a very literal translation, and it, it's very transparent as to what the translation process is. Uh, but one of the coolest things that really stands out to me as being different when you're reading through it, and especially when you're hearing it, is that it doesn't. It, it doesn't trans. It transliterates the word Yahweh instead of replacing it with the word Lord in small caps like most translations do. And I just think it's cool to hear it that way and and notice how many times his name is actually used throughout it. And it also kind of makes it even more personal, I think, in making him a character with a name in the story. Uh, So anyway, we're going to be looking at Chapter 3. Last week, Mike brought us through Chapter 2 and I think really gave us a good appreciation uh, for... Biblical poetry, ancient Jewish poetry, and specifically Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish right in the middle of the book there. Uh, And, you know, that chapter being a poem is kind of, it's a break somewhat from the narrative, from the story that starts in chapter one. So you have God telling Jonah to go to Nineveh. And, of course, instead he runs away, pays to go get on this ship that's going to Tarshish. And God sends the storm, they find out it's Jonah's fault, and he says, throw me overboard. They don't want to, eventually they do it, and the storm calms down. And we talked about how that whole chain of events in chapter 1 introduces us to this story that is so backwards and upside down from what we should be expecting uh, from a book in the Bible. It starts off like all the other books in the Prophets. Because right, Jonah is a book of the prophets. It starts off with the word of God coming to, or the word of Yahweh coming to Jonah, and that's how all the other prophets start. Then it goes into the story about Jonah, and which, by the way, his name Jonah means dove, and he's the son of Amittai, which means faithfulness. So even his name uh, is, is backwards because the, this man of God runs away from God. And then the people, the pagans on the ship, who he risked their lives just being there on the ship. Uh, He didn't seem to really care about that. And then he gets them to kill him, uh, and they end up being the ones who actually worship Yahweh. They offer sacrifices, and they ask for forgiveness for throwing him overboard. So then in chapter 2, we have the fish, or the end of chapter 1, you have the fish swallowing Jonah, and then at the end of chapter 2, you have him Vomiting Jonah back up onto land. By the way, do you, do you want to know the Hebrew word for vomit? <laughs> Ka. <laughs> Isn't that kind of, it's fitting. Ka. Anyway, uh, the, yeah, I'll stop there. Um, so, in between those bookends, you have you know, the, the fish at the beginning and, and in the middle, you just have this poem, right? And it doesn't really advance this narrative, this story, you know, much at all. But it does reveal Jonah's heart. Uh, to some extent, you see his heart soften just enough to be willing to obey God, but there's never any repentance. There's never, he doesn't ask for forgiveness like the pagans did. Uh, so it, it, it was kind of a break from the story, but that also doesn't mean that we should skim over it and not pay attention to it. Uh, And I think Mike did a great job of kind of showing why it's worth paying attention to. But then in chapter 3, it picks the narrative back up, with Jonah having been uh, spit up onto the land. It starts off with, in chapter 3, the word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time. What does the word of Yahweh say? Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. So this is the second Time that the word of Yahweh has come to Jonah. And it's pretty much the same message as the first time, right? It starts off exactly the same as back in chapter 1, verse 2, and he says, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach. It's the exact same words. Uh, and then it says in the original message, he actually says, preach against it because their evil has come up before me. So it actually, there's, we have more context from the first time that's not brought up the second time. but It specifies that Jonah is to go to Nineveh and preach not just to it, but against it. There's a difference there. because I'm preaching to you guys. I'm not preaching against you guys, at least not yet. So he's to preach against it, and he explains why. Because their evil has come up before me. So... What kind of evil are we talking about here? I want to talk about this for a minute. We know, First of all, we know they, they certainly don't worship Yahweh. They don't fear him. They don't know him. Uh, but th- they're not unique in that regard. In fact, the Jews were unique in that they did worship Yahweh. He was the God of Israel, right? So there were really no other nations that we know of that, that did worship Yahweh. So why is Nineveh being singled out. So first of all, we need to remember that Nineveh was, the city of Nineveh was the capital city of a larger empire, the Assyrian Empire. And we know that Assyria had great military uh, power, brilliance. They were very smart in in their military tactics. They were very effective, and they were able to grow their kingdom, their empire, very quickly uh, because of the effectiveness of their Military and they controlled a pretty large area of what we now refer to as the Middle East. Uh, so from Iraq to Israel, um, they would contr- they controlled a large portion of that region. They are the biggest empire in the world, the known world at the time. And because they were, you know, they pushed up against Israel's borders, so they were often in conflict with Israel. They were one of Israel's enemies. <laughs> but the Assyrians, they weren't just known for being Brilliant. Uh, they were also known for being very brutal uh, with their military tactics. That's partially why they were so effective. They were able to build machinery to siege uh, cities, uh, but they were also very brutal with the captives that they took. They were one of the most violent empires that is known to history, and this is just a historical fact. We know this from biblical records and also other records of you know, history and archaeology, and a lot of this we know because, of, or is confirmed by archaeological discoveries. We have some details uh, through the artwork that's been discovered, uh, and it was, you know, mainly artwork that's like carved pieces of stone and clay. Um, and I have a video to just give you an idea of what this looks like. Um, there's this example that I'm going to show you is on display in the British Museum, and it's artwork that would have lined the halls of a palace, and it depicts you know, battle exploits, and it tells a story. And if you were a foreigner, or if you, if you were a Ninevite, it would give you pride to look at this and see, oh yeah, look at all we've done and accomplished. If you weren't a Ninevite, if you weren't an Assyrian, uh, if you were a Jew, for example, going through this palace hall and looking at this, it would make you tremble in fear because it's showing how brutal they were and how Effective they were, so I'm gonna this is called the Siege of Laish. No, go back to the Laish was actually in it was a Jewish city, and I'm just gonna there's no audio or anything. I just kind of wanted to give you a visual of of what this looked like. I'm gonna kind of let this play while I talk. It's cool in a sense that we can see how well preserved this is an animation. Of it. uh, but it's it's cool to see it, and you can look up other pictures online. Uh, just the fact that it has, but it's thousands of years old, and we can still look at this. It's also not cool in a sense because it does show. You can see this is the army lining up uh, to attack, and over on the right, and I think it shows it, uh, in another place. You can see some of their uh, battle machinery. They're besieging the city, but in other places, you'll see. Uh, how it does depict some of the, the brutal methods of torture that they used. Uh, and Mike brought this up uh, briefly last week, too. Um, but in some places, you'll see people being stretched out. They would strip them bare and stretch them out. And if you look closely, it shows the Assyrians with knives getting ready to, to skin them alive. Uh, and then it, there's another place where it shows them putting people on poles where they would— uh, cut down trees and sharpen them and impale people on them and set them on hills around the city so that everyone around would see that that city had been captured. And thats I know these, that's a very sickening thought. At least it should be. You know, it's, it's horrifying to think of the things that they did. Um, if, if you're somehow comforted, comforted by those images and there's something wrong, we should probably talk about. Uh, but that's the, the point. It was horrifying. So, uh, it was horrifying, and it should be horrifying to think of those things, and that's why God was, was uh, so upset. He was so concerned that these things were going on. And there were probably other ways in which they were uh, being evil, so to speak, but I think that the violence, the, the outstanding, exceptional violence, was the primary thing, the primary focus uh, as to what God was trying to put an end to. And you would think if if your people had a history of being brutally attacked by this other group of people, that maybe you would be excited to go and bring a message to this people that God was going to wipe them out, right? Or if you you heard that of Jonah's message, you'd be like, yeah, Jonah, let's Let's go, you know, send the message. Let's watch him fry. You know, God's finally going to do something about this. And we'll see in the next chapter, and if you were listening, that is exactly what Jonah wanted. That's what he wanted to see. But he he just knew God too well enough. Uh, he knew that he was too worried that God would actually exercise mercy and spare them. But we'll get there next week. For the For now, the point that I want to get across is, God's judgment against Nineveh was warranted. And I think for the Jews at the time, from their perspective, it would have been a long time coming. It would be like the sense of finally God is uh, judging Nineveh and Assyria. So in verse 3, we see Jonah finally does get up like God told him to, and he sets out to proclaim God's judgment on Nineveh. And there is an interesting note that I want to look at in verse 3 that says, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. So that three-day walk, is that's a statement that has thrown some people for a loop uh, in the past. So I just want to talk about that briefly. Because we, we know, it might, not, it might seem innocuous at first glance, but if you really think about it and do the math, we know that there really were no cities anywhere at that time that would take three days to walk from one end of that city to the other. Even today, I looked up, you know, Tokyo, depending on the metrics that you use, Tokyo is considered one of the world's largest cities. So I looked at how long Tokyo is, and if you walked from one end, the long end, to the other, it would take about 14 hours. So you could... You technically do that in one day, be a long day, but even if you wanted to break it up into two more comfortable days, it's still only two days. So what do we do with this claim that Nineveh was a three-day walk inside? There's a few different possibilities for this. Um, It is possible that it was meant to be understood as, you know, not literally, but as a turn of phrase to emphasize how great, important, and large the city was, Uh, but there are two other possibilities that I think are more likely. And one is that it's referring to Nineveh, not just as like the city proper as we would consider it, uh, but as kind of Nineveh and the surrounding area, kind of like we have Watertown, which has city limits, uh, and then we have the water, the greater Watertown area, right? And I mean, even taking it further, I, we live in Lowville, but from people, for people who aren't from here, I'll say, well, it's, it's near Watertown, you know, so that can be defined in a number of different ways but i think what's even more likely is that the walk that it's referring to is not necessarily an end to end walk but rather a walk to actually canvas the whole city so traversing up and down each road or at least through each neighborhood to make sure that the message actually reaches uh, everyone and that would that would take obviously much longer to go tokyo would probably take months to cover uh, that way Watertown maybe could be done in three days. I'm not sure. I wasn't up to actually mapping and figuring that all out. But if anyone wants to figure that out for me, I'd love to know. Uh, if you're into you know mapping things out and doing the math on that, uh, I wasn't up to doing all that. But the point is the city was big, and the task that Jonah had was uh, a significant task. <laughs> and it's imp- the implication is that if he does cover the city thoroughly, that it will take three days, at least. And he sets out in verse four, (laughs) never mentions, he sets out on the first day, right? Never mentions a second or third day, which is interesting. And he proclaims, what does he proclaim? In 40 days, Nineveh Nineveh will be demolished. In 40 days, you're all going to be destroyed. That's his message. That's it's a really interesting message. Uh, in, in the Hebrew, it's only five words. In English, it's maybe seven or eight, depending on uh, your translation. It's a five-word sermon, something you'll never get here. <laughs> and he never mentions anything about God. He never mentions anything about repentance. He just says, 40 days and you're gone. That's it. And this is a, kind of another situation where there's a couple ways to interpret this. It's possible that in the story we're only provided with kind of a summary, uh, whereas God may have given him a larger message to say, and we don't have the full thing. It's more of this concise summary. It could be that God gave him that simple five-word message and knew that the people would be able to infer what they needed to from there. There are quite a few people who (laughs) studied this and think that it's very likely that this was some sort of uh sabotage on jonah's behalf he was sabotaging his own message by giving the bare minimum to where he could still check the box and say yep i delivered the message but also giving them as little as possible with the hopes that they wouldn't repent that they wouldn't listen to god and in fact honestly the the response that i would expect in that situation is for them to get really upset and uh Probably beat him up and kick him out or just kill him completely, torture him like he like they are known to do, so he's giving him the, this this message, and knowing Jonah's character, I don't think that's out of character. We don't know for sure which which it was, um, but I think it would certainly be within Jonah's character to have that mindset of maybe I can give them just this five word message and they'll just kill me, and I'll be done with this <laughs> so we don't know for sure but either way the message would have sounded like great news for the jews uh if it was to come true it would have probably even sounded like good news for some of the other surrounding people groups and other cities if they happened to hear the news that this is some prophet guys claiming that his god is going to destroy Nineveh it would be big news it would be very bad news for Nineveh and for Assyria because if the capital city was destroyed, then that would really spell the downfall of the whole empire from there. But what was Nineveh's response? The people who heard Jonah's message believed God. Again, we it doesn't say they believed Jonah. They believed God. So somehow they knew that this message was from God. They understood that they needed to respond in a certain way in order to avoid destruction. And this is, again, where we just see how this book, how the story is so hilariously backwards. Because from the greatest of them to the least, uh, they did three things to communicate outwardly their response. They proclaimed a fast, they dressed in sackcloth, and they sat in ashes. At least the king did. So that's pretty weird. Why, Why did they do those three things? We can see all three of those things uh, in other places throughout Scripture. They're used to convey, you know, mourning and repentance most frequently. And fasting, fasting is an interesting topic because of those three things, fasting is the one that we do actually see prominently featured, used uh, in the New Testament as well. And fasting even today is a spiritual discipline that many people value as very important, even crucial to the Christian life. We don't actually talk about fasting very often here, uh, so I think we'll be revisiting this topic in the near future uh, because it is important. But for now, it'll just suffice to say that fasting was it was a form of is a form of self deprivation. Uh, you're denying food. In their case water even, and it's meant to humble yourself and convey earnestness and refocus your inner thoughts and your desires for a specific purpose. Now the sackcloth and the ashes, they're a little bit more of a specific cultural custom uh, that we do see was practiced in the ancient Near East. Um, and the word sackcloth, by the way, in the second I think this is the only other Hebrew word I'll get into today, but the sack cloth in Hebrew is just sack, sack. And it's actually where we get our word for sack. Uh, It it went from Hebrew to Greek to Latin, and that's where it came into English. Um, And we would often think of a potato sack, right, a burlap potato sack. And it's the same idea. It would have been, for them, it would have been made out of uh, goat hair or camel hair, but it would have been just a coarse uh, material that wasn't, me- it wasn't meant to be used as a garment or clothing. It was meant to just haul things around in so it would be itchy and uncomfortable, unflattering, and it served to humble yourself again uh, for a specific occasion. As for the ashes, the only significance I could find for the ashes uh, is that ashes were associated with the dead. So when people were in mourning for the dead, they would often... Uh, pair the ashes with the sackcloth as part of the mourning rituals. In their case, they weren't so much mourning for anyone who had died yet, but there was probably an element of mourning for the, the uh, imminent destruction, uh, that they were all going to be dead soon, so they were kind of preparing for that. But again, in all of this, what stands out in their reaction is how incredible this role reversal is. Because usually, when the other places where we see this happening, the fasting and the sackcloth, usually we see the Jews doing this. Uh, Jeremiah, for example, he told the Jews, put on sackcloth uh, and repent. But right after we read a chapter in which Jonah refuses or fails to repent in chapter 2, we get to this chapter where this city, the most powerful city in the world, full of these brutal, violent pagans, Humbling themselves before God. And it wasn't just a small group of them or even a partial. It wasn't 90% of them. It was the whole city, wasn't it? Even the king, who was, you know, and it could have been more like a governor, he would, still, he would have been the most powerful and influential man in that city and possibly the whole world at that time if he was the ruler of the Assyrian Empire. And you see him, he gets up out of his throne, right? And that If you just stop there, that can kind of sound a little bit intimidating. You think, "Uh uh-oh, he's about to get up and do something about this. He's going to go find Jonah. He's going to kill him. No, he humbles himself. He steps down from his throne, takes off his royal robe, and sits in ashes. And then he makes this decree that not just every person wear sackcloth, but all the animals, too. I think this is one of those moments where it's, again, just larger than life, like this whole story, it's it's extreme. I don't want to say exaggerated because I don't think it's exaggerated in the sense that it didn't happen. It's just extreme. Uh, so why the animals had to wear sackcloth and they had to fast too. So while the people are crying up to God, just imagine, uh, do cows uh, make sounds when they're hungry? You hear them? Yeah, I can imagine, even our cats, they get they go crazy when they they're hungry. If we haven't fed them, they'll Bother us to no end. So you have all the animals being deprived of food, wearing uncomfortable sackcloth. So they're bellowing and and moaning, and the people are crying. It would have been quite the spectacle. And you know, this is another one of those topics we might come back to at some point. Just the significance of animals and how it's really interesting to see how animals are so often uh, intertwined with people and how their their fates and their welfare is often. Uh, It often correlates uh, the people and the animals in in biblical stories. Uh, But the point here that it conveys is that it was a complete and a thorough repentance across the whole city. And notice, too, an interesting thing about the king's decree. It wasn't just about the outward expression of fasting and sackcloth. And in verse 8, he says that everyone must cry out earnestly to God. So those are all outward expressions. But then he says, and each must turn from his evil ways. That's an, that's an inward. It will translate to outward actions. But that's the, the, the word turn. We talked about this a bit back in Malachi, the word turn here. Uh, it's a very common word that you see in the prophets. And it's often translated as repent, but it's that Hebrew word. Oh, there's another Hebrew word. Sorry. I think this is the last one. It's the Hebrew word shuv, uh, and we, we've translated it into the word repent, uh, which the word repent is a, a pretty specifically religious word. Um, I haven't really seen it used in other contexts other than in you know church and religious contexts, but in Hebrew, the original meaning of shuv was really more of a practical meaning. It didn't have the religious connotation, but the prophets used it as a metaphor for what should be happening inside. It literally just means turn around. It means to be walking in one direction, to stop, turn around, and walk in the opposite direction. That's what shuv means, It's a literal practical action. It's like if you're, you, and the prophet's crying out, shuv! It's like you see someone who, and you, they're clearly looking for the bathroom somewhere, and you know they're going in the opposite direction they should be going and you call out to them and say, hey, you're going the wrong way. Turn around. It's it's the opposite way. That's what the prophets are saying when they say shoo. And, you know, the response is either, oh, okay, thank you. Any reasonable person or if they are desperate enough to be going in the right direction, they'll say, okay, thank you so much and, and turn around right away. If there's a little more pride involved, you know, there might be a tendency to say, oh, no, I just needed something from over here. I know where I'm going, you know. And so I, I think there's that same uh, <laughs> tendency often when people are called to repent. Uh, it's either, thank you, uh, and you do it, or I'm going to keep doing things my own way. So anyway, the idea here is the king is telling them to shoot, to turn around. Stopping in your tracks, turning around, admitting that you're <laughs> going the wrong way, doing a 180, And walking the other direction. It takes humility to do that. And you can see that there was humility here, true humility, and an understanding that they they really didn't deserve to be spared by God. They still didn't have an expectation. They weren't like, okay, we're doing all this now. You have to spare us. Uh, You see in verse 9, the king says, who knows? I don't know. Who knows? Maybe, possible, God will relent And change his mind and turn, shuv, the same word, from his blazing anger so that we will not perish. And he did. Just as Jonah feared, God saw and spared them. And I think I just want to take a moment and recognize that when God calls out and says, hey, turn around, it's because... He loves you enough to judge what you're doing, tell you it leads to destruction, and if you turn around, it's to be met with God's grace staring you in the face. So judgment, God's judgment, is not the opposite of love. It's an expression of love. And that's, here we come to one of the major takeaways of the book of Jonah, one of the big theological truths. So far, the primary you know, theological truth that we've talked about so far, mostly is the sovereignty of God. And you see that a lot in chapter 1, uh, even a little bit in chapter 2, and then we'll see a lot of it again in chapter 4. But this is another big one, a big theological claim being made in this book, in God's forgiveness. It's not just that God is merciful and quick to forgive just like Jonah knew and why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. That's part of it, certainly. But we've also seen that demonstrated all throughout uh, the Old Testament with how God has dealt with Israel, right? He's forgiven them countless times. He's full of mercy. More unique to Jonah in the Old Testament is the evidence that God is willing and desires to reach out and save even pagan, non-Jewish and extremely sinful people from the wrath of his justice. Why did he send Jonah in the first place? He sent Jonah with a message that Nineveh was going to be destroyed. That obviously wasn't because he wanted to destroy them. He could have just done that without warning them. Generally, if you want to destroy someone, you don't warn them ahead of time, right? If you warn them, it's because you want something to happen to prevent it from happening. He wanted to send a message that would cause them to realize, to wake up to their own wickedness and give them the opportunity to repent. And remember, that's when we talked about Malachi, that's one of the primary functions of a prophet. It's often, you know, to pronounce judgment, yes, but it's for the end goal of resulting in repentance on the hearer. Usually that would be directed towards the Jews, towards Israel. God calling out to them saying, look, we, I entered a marriage covenant with you and you've messed up and you've broken our relationship, but I want you to turn back to me so that we can enjoy each other forever. But God wanting to actually save a non-Jewish community would have been appalling to many of the Jews that would have been reading it at the time. It certainly was to Jonah, wasn't it? He, he hated this. And we take it for granted now, of course, uh, not being Jewish, most of us, I assume. But that's really what God's mission has been all along. When he promised to Abraham that he would make his descendants into a great nation, it was also that his, that nation would be the source of blessing, that God would use them to bless all the other nations of the world. And we know ultimately that was fulfilled through Christ, But even when that happened, when Christ fulfilled this, it was a difficult concept to grasp, Uh, even for scholars of the Hebrew Bible. If you think of someone like Paul, uh, who, if you know his story, I won't get into it all now, but he hated Jesus. But eventually, it it was a a tough road for him, no pun intended, but he he came to identify eventually as an apostle to the Gentiles, which would have, I bet he never thought that would be his life prior to the road to Damascus, but he did that 180, and he got there. He was a missionary to the Gentiles. Jonah, Jonah never really did a 180. Uh, he did obey God, but I'd say he was sort of an unwilling missionary. He was a very bad missionary, but God did use him nonetheless, to reveal himself to the people of Nineveh and to us. And Jonah, you know, he tried to kind of foil God's plan of mercy. He tried to prevent it, and in doing so, he only hurt himself. God still did what he was going to do, and that's certainly a lesson for us. When we resist God, it's only going to hurt us and and possibly those around us as well. God's still going to do what he's going to do. And the story of Jonah reveals that God is truly, you know, the God of Israel at the time. That's who they thought of God as. God of Israel. He's really the God of the whole world. He's the God of all people. And he wants justice for all people because he loves people. And because he loves people, he judges people. The judgment of God again is another topic I want to come back to because that's a whole I could do a whole sermon on that and I think I will. But for now, I just want to encourage you to ponder this God, fear and worship, and joyfully praise God because He's a God of loving justice. And as you come to know Him and you hear Him, ask Him to reveal your own heart to you. Reveal where you might be in the story. You know, are you the Assyrians before hearing the message, totally blind to your own sin? Or are you aware, has God made known to you something that you need to humble yourself in repentance before God? Are you Jonah uh, kind of begrudgingly obeying God, but not really seeing it his way and or even just hating him for his mercy? I think this is one of the powerful things about this book is we're all, I think, at times, uh, Jonahs. But in the, uh, <laughs> the ironic spirit of this book, I want to encourage us not to be like Jonah, but to be like the Ninevites. Or like Paul, you know, living in humble gratitude to God's gracious love and the salvation that we enjoy because of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you for being the awesome God that you are, because I know I am a bad judge. I fail to discern right from wrong, and that's where I'm so thankful that we can rely on you to be the perfect judge of right and wrong. and and of justice, and I thank you for loving us enough to judge us and for loving us enough to save us for sending your Son to take the the penalty for our sins because we can never do it on our own. Thank you for loving the world. I pray that you would make that truth a reality to us, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, and in the way that we live and respond to you, may it bring glory to you, may it express gratitude, and may it draw others to that grace, that we can experience grace and freedom in your love. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen, amen. I don't think we have any other announcements. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we, uh, I had an idea. Uh, we've been kind of opening up at the end uh, to questions, if there's any you know, discussion to be had. And I thought it might be a, a cool idea for you guys and anyone watching uh, to think of any questions or just anything you want, um, any thoughts you have that you'd like Mike or I to address. Send them to us in an email or text us somehow over the course of the next couple weeks, um, and we would love to hear what you would like to hear. So uh, anything that you think, and then you know, we can keep it anonymous if you want. Um, so you can come up with any kinds of crazy questions. And regarding Jonah, regarding Jonah, yes, thank you. Uh, yes. Regarding Jonah, if you can make it somehow relate to Jonah, then, then we'll, uh, and, and we will be picking them ahead of time. Uh, so we have the right to, we reserve the right not to uh, address something if, if we don't want to. But I thought it would be neat to try to collect stuff ahead of time. That gives you guys time to think of it, um, and we'll, uh, we'll pull from that, and I think that'd be fun. Anything else? All right. Everyone have a wonderful week.